0: Uh, Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we pray now that you would help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly to the honour and glory of our Lord Jesus, and that that your word would do its work in our lives. It would help us to trust Jesus, and through its teaching, rebuke, correction, and training, Equip us to live as his people. In your mercy we pray that we would know that good work, that we would be doers of your word and not hearers only. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, some of you are familiar with the performance reviews that happens in your workplace, uh, you know, where your manager sits you down and discusses your job and how well you're going against those key performance indicators, talks about what you might improve, helps you to set your personal goals for the coming year. Now imagine that instead of talking with you alone, all the other staff, including those you are responsible for managing, We're invited to listen in as your manager talked about what was required in your role and how you should go about fulfilling it. Awkward. That would be very awkward, wouldn't it? Inviting scrutiny by everyone else of your performance. But that's actually a little like what Peter's doing here in 1 Peter 5. In a letter to be read to all believers, he's talking about the elders, the congregational leaders responsible for the welfare of Of the congregation. He's talking about how the elders should be going about their work, their service. Awkward then and awkward now, this public focus on the work of elders, at least for those of us who are elders. But Peter is not writing to invite the congregation to do a performance review. He's writing to encourage elders at a time they need encouragement, to encourage them, verses 2 to 4 to serve and keep serving for love of Jesus and to model their service on Jesus. And he's also writing to encourage congregations, verse 5, to receive this leadership. And he's inviting us all to listen in to what he says about the service of elders, for congregational leadership is necessary and important for the health of congregations And it's important that we all recognise the kind of leadership God says we need and know how to support it. But there's also a second reason we're invited to listen in. The kind of service Peter calls for from elders, the service he calls them to model, is the kind of service we should all be practising out of love for Jesus and modelled on Jesus Now Peter's just spoken in uh, chapter 4 verses 12 to 19 of the trials believers are facing and the need in these trials to entrust ourselves to God and to show that trust in persevering in doing good. And the appeal he makes to elders in verses 1 to 4 is very closely linked to what has gone before. Uh, The CSB doesn't have it, but in the original there's this, therefore, so then... Let those of us who suffer according to God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while doing what is good. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you. Peter's saying, in the light of what I've been saying about the unsurprising nature of suffering for loyalty to Christ, of your already sharing in the sufferings of Christ, and in the light of the need to keep trusting our faithful creator and showing this in doing good, I am now giving you elders this encouragement to keep on with the task entrusted to you and to keep going about it in a certain way, God's way, willingly, eagerly, being examples. Now, in the context of suffering, this exhortation to the elders, those entrusted, verse 2, with shepherding God's flock, is understandable, isn't it? I mean, those trials affect them directly, Increasing the demands and the risk of their work. You see, communities under pressure, and, and imagine not just isolation, but you know, having your property confiscated, losing your job, being tossed out of your home, harassed in the courts. Communities under pressure need lots of care and encouragement in their suffering. <coughs> and communities under pressure can become critical of each other, start to withdraw and love less, even divide or become susceptible to false teachers with promises of quick relief or teaching compromise with the demands of the culture. There's a need for constant reminding of the truth and encouragement to live by it where a community is facing suffering. And in persecution, it can be the leaders of the congregations who are targeted first and repeatedly. In the face of these demands and risks, there's actually a temptation for congregational leaders, for elders and pastors to withdraw, to distance from the need, to become less active, reluctant to serve at the very time congregations most need active pastoring. So Peter gives the elders... This encouragement, this exhortation, introducing himself by outlining his qualifications to speak to them about their role. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Peter's a fellow elder, and that's important. It's always easier to receive advice and encouragement from someone who shares the same responsibilities as you. Someone you know knows what they're talking about because they have experience of the work. So Peter's letting us know he's no armchair critic or ivory tower theoretician. He's on the field playing the game. And then he says he's a witness to the sufferings of Christ and somebody who will partake in the glory that will be revealed. Now, why mention the sufferings and glory of Christ before giving instructions on leadership, especially as we tend to think that leadership is just about a range of pragmatic skills? Well, it's to put what he's about to say in the gospel frame, in the context of the truthfulness of the gospel and the certainty of what it promises. And Peter knows what he's talking about. He had witnessed the hardship of the Lord Jesus' ministry, the opposition he had faced from the religious authorities, his sufferings in the garden, his betrayal and rest, his mock trials, he had seen the wounds in Jesus' hands and side. He was a witness to the sufferings of Christ. And he was also convinced of Christ's glory and power, witness as he was of his resurrection and exaltation to the Father's right hand and so convinced of the coming revelation of Christ's glory. But why does Peter mention these two things specifically as his qualification to give this encouragement to the elders? It's to bring out and bring home not just the truthfulness of the gospel and the certainty of its promises, but the experience of God's grace that is the foundation of all our service. You see, think, how can Peter, who denied the Lord Jesus three times despite his boast of faithfulness to the death, how can Peter call himself a fellow elder? How did he now have any role in Christ's service? How could he be confident of sharing in the glory of the king that he had abandoned in need? I mean, Peter's denial of Christ was no secret in the churches. It's an indelible part of the gospel story recorded in every gospel, known wherever the gospel is told. So how could Peter the denier call himself a fellow elder? Well, it's because, as you heard in the gospel reading from John 21, the Lord Jesus graciously restored him by that threefold questioning, graciously assured Peter, of his continuing as one of his followers, graciously gave him that elder's role of caring for Jesus' flock by feeding his sheep. It's grace. And how was it possible, though, that Peter should be so graciously spared the judgment his denial deserved? Well, hearers of the letter have already heard Peter say this. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. Peter includes himself. Peter is saying that he's pardoned by the sufferings of Christ that he witnesses. He knows the Lord Jesus bore his sins on the cross while suffering for him. Fallen once... The confidence he has, so great that he can speak of himself here as already a partner, a sharer in the coming glory, is confidence in God's grace and in the effectiveness of Christ's death to deal with his sin. Peter makes his exhortation not just on the basis of his knowledge of the role of elder, but also on the basis of the truth of the gospel, not just the truth of the events, but the truth, the certainty of the grace and pardon it brings. And he puts what he's about to say in the gospel frame, for the service he calls for is made possible by Christ, motivated by Christ, modelled on Christ. It's a service that comes from knowing Christ in the gospel. Peter and the other apostles preach and experiencing in believing that gospel, the Lord Jesus' forgiving love and grace just as Peter had experienced it. And so to the elders, he writes, "Shepherds, shepherd God's flock among you. Now, Peter's focus will be on the manner in which the elders go about their work, which you'll speak of by three contrasts. But there's here for us a brief reminder of the elders' task. It's to shepherd the flock of God. Now calling God's people God's flock is a way of speaking about believers that's got a rich Old Testament history and there's some references there in the outline. But it says God's people belong to him and he cares about them and is active to protect and provide for them. And Peter can use this term for believers in Jesus Because there is only one people of God and the Lord Jesus is the good shepherd whom God promised in Ezekiel 34 would gather all God's people. And so this little line is is a reminder that elders are not owners but accountable servants as shepherds appointed by God to tend his flock. That's the way Paul speaks of them in Ephesians, of those whom the Holy Spirit As appointed as overseers. Now, the chief responsibility of a shepherd is to feed the sheep. The chief responsibility of an elder is to keep God's flock strong and healthy by ensuring a good diet of gospel truth as the teaching of the Word of God, known and applied to our lives. That was the task, as you heard, entrusted by the Lord Jesus to Peter feed my sheep. And it's the one skill amidst a whole group of character qualifications looked for from elders in Timothy and Titus. They have to be able to teach. You see, that faithful teaching is the key to the health of the flock and the key to protecting the flock from false teaching, from those fierce wolves who would devour and scatter Jesus' followers. <coughs> but the image of shepherd also tells us that it can't be one-off teaching. The work of the shepherd is constant. Sheep need to keep eating day after day, God's people need to keep hearing God's word day after day, all their lives. And shepherds need to be diligent and persevering in their work. And they also have to be vigilant. For as it says here, they oversee the flock. That is, they keep an eye on both the individuals and the whole, the general circumstances of the flock to ensure its ongoing health and safety and elders also need to make sure the congregation as a whole is operating as it should, anticipating challenges, dealings with disruptions, giving thought to long-term provision of healthy teaching and also practising discipline, dealing with behaviour that wounds individuals and the congregation's reputation. Elders are to shepherd and oversee God's flock. But Peter's purpose is not to give a comprehensive list of the elders' responsibilities. He's talking to people already engaged in the task. <coughs> they know what's involved. And so his emphasis is instead on the way elders are to keep on carrying out the responsibility given to them. And firstly, he says, that means that they work willingly, not by compulsion. Elders and not to be reluctant conscripts. People who wish they were doing something else only doing it because someone else thought it would be a good idea, say, for them to serve this way. They're to serve willingly, deliberately, because they have freely chosen to. Now, when you consider the difficulties and dangers of the job, especially where there's persecution for Christ's sake, why would you, should you, be willing as God would have you? To answer that, think again of the dialogue between our Lord and Peter, where Peter was entrusted with the task of feeding Jesus' sheep. Uh, You can read it for yourselves again, but what was the one question our Lord asked of Peter? Do you love me? And Peter's answer was, you know that I love you. Love of Jesus was the source of Peter's willingness to serve as an elder, a pastor. Source of his willingness for a service our Lord told him, as you heard in that passage, would end in his death. Love of Jesus, because we too know his forgiving love, should also be the source of every elder's willing service. And that's the way God would have it. For the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, who willingly served us in his death and has graciously forgiven us, deserves to be loved, loved as God is to be loved with all our heart, mind, soul and strength. And where we love him, we will willingly serve him. And that's true for all of us, isn't it? Not just elders. Our Lord who loved us and gave himself for us is not honoured by grudging, reluctant service, but willing, freely chosen service. If we're to keep on serving as God would have us, love of Jesus, nurtured by constant remembrance of and thankfulness for his love in his death for us and his love in calling us as the living Lord to himself, must be daily renewed in each of us. We're to serve willingly and not out of greed for money, but eagerly. Uh, Greed for money. Elders are not to serve out of self-interest for material present benefit. Greed for money is a reminder that Peter's not talking about theoretical dangers to an elder's service. Uh, When he's warning of a dispiriting reluctance and greed and abuse of authority... He's warning of real corruptions of Christian leadership and you probably know that already from your own experience. But if not, just watch American Gospel with its exposure of the greed of preachers like Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn. These are real dangers. Now, congregations should supply those elders they've set apart for full-time preaching with a living, as Scripture makes clear, but greed should not motivate their service. Elders can't have a calculated commitment that measures their commitment to the flock by the return, the benefits they can get out of them. Instead of being greedy for money, elders, says Peter, should be eager to serve, eager not to use others but to meet their needs. Now why? Again, the answer is Jesus. If you love the Lord Jesus, you will love his people. It's true, isn't it, when you fall in love with someone, and that's happened to me, you know. Uh, you, you, let's say a bloke with a girl, and you realise a girl you love actually loves her mum and dad. Don't you work hard to look after them when they visit, to make them comfortable, not so much as to create a good impression, though that helps, but because you love their daughter, and what matters to her now matters to you. And I'm sure it's the other way round too. Jesus sheep, our fellow believers, are dear to Jesus, people for whom he died. We should want their health and growth, their safety and peace. their persevering to the end for Jesus' sake. And in serving them, as our Lord says in Matthew 25, you know you are serving the Lord Jesus. You are doing it for him. Now, how can the Christian heart, One that knows the wonder of being forgiven, of the love of the Lord Jesus in giving himself for us to give us eternal life, not be eager to serve the Lord in serving his people. And if you're not eager to serve, you ought to ask yourself that question. And we know our Lord is a faithful master for whom no service will be overlooked, even giving a cup of cold water. To one of his followers. See, opportunities to serve the Lord Jesus now are opportunities to be like the first two servants in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, to be those who hear, Well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master because they seized the opportunities to serve while they could. We should serve eagerly. Because we love Jesus' people for Jesus' sake and we know our Lord is a faithful master. How should elders go about their task? Willingly, eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you but being examples of the flock, to the flock. Loving the Lord Jesus and loving his people for Jesus' sake, elders are to serve like the Lord Jesus who made himself an example for us of service. And lording it over speaks of gaining domination over others, subduing them to serve your will. This is wanting leadership so you can get your own way and satisfy your ego. And it can manifest in abusive, bullying leadership. These leaders, you see, think they're a class apart and different rules apply to them and than then apply to those in their care. You know, for them it's do as I say, not as I do. They are less shepherds than CEOs achieving the corporate goals, generals winning victories, star performers bringing in the crowds. And they are in positions of leadership in churches. In fact... Congregations often seem to want them in leadership, their behaviour excused on the basis of the results they achieve. But that is so against God's word. Elders who shepherd the Lord's flock are to be examples, do as I do, not just as I say. And they're to be examples, firstly, of what it is to be one of the Lord Jesus' sheep. And we've seen in 1 Peter what our Lord calls for from his people. So elders have to be examples in persevering in doing good, even if it means suffering, of love and hospitality, of a godly life lived in the fear of the Lord, of a life that submits to authority of disciples who are always willing to give a defence for the hope they have. And they are also to be examples of what it is to serve in their own service, in serving willingly, Legally, humbly, examples of following the examples of the Lord Jesus. You see, it's the Lord Jesus who gave and set the example of leadership as service. When his disciples were seeking greatness, he said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them, but it is not so among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to be great among you, will be your servant and whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many and on the night before he died having washed his disciples feet a sign of his coming death for them Jesus said to them do you know what I have done for you You call me teacher and Lord and you're speaking rightly since that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet for I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. A servant is not greater than his master and a messenger not greater than the one who sent him.
1: Blessed
0: are you if you do these things. Elders, are to be an example to all in their service, an example of being directed by the example of Jesus. You see, Peter publicly focuses in verses 2 to 3 on the way elders are to serve, for exhorting elders to serve willingly, eagerly, by being examples, keeps The three most necessary things for a healthy congregational life right to the full keeps the love of Jesus, love for Jesus' people and the authority of the example of the Lord Jesus right at the heart of congregational life. It keeps us as the people of the Lord Jesus. And Peter speaks publicly to all of the service of elders so These three things are prominent in all our lives. Love of Jesus because he loved us. Love of Jesus' people for Jesus' sake and following Jesus' example because he is Lord and Master. That should be what motivates and guides every believer's service, your service, whatever it is, and all of us. Every believer, as we saw in 1 Peter 4, is called to serve. All of us are called to serve. Now, you can make your own assessment of the eldership here in the light of what's taught, but this is the kind of eldership we should recognise and welcome, motivated by Christ, modelled on Christ and, yes, rewarded by Christ. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The crown or wreath, whether of gold or celery leaves, you would feel the difference, wouldn't you? But some people got celery leaves. was given in those times in recognition of achievement, of victory in athletics, in war, in civic benefaction. And Peter is in no doubt that those who serve their Lord faithfully in caring for his people will receive that crown, the unfading crown, whose honour will never tarnish, whose joy will always be fresh, whose achievements will never be forgotten. Peter's confidence of this is not sustained by the deserving of our service, but by the faithful grace and steadfast love of our Lord, that's the basis of his own confidence and is actually the basis of every believer's confidence of being saved at the last day receiving the crown of righteousness. But while we are confident of that, we should be zealous. Zealous for that crown ought to use Paul's illustration in 1 Corinthians 3. We should be zealous to build with costly materials that will survive the testing fire, to not be casual about serving Jesus, not giving him what we can afford after we've pursued our own interests. Now we should be zealous to give him our best in willing, eager service of his people. Peter is calling in verses 1 to 4 for elders to serve, motivated by experience of Christ in the gospel, by the experience of his grace to serve for love of Jesus and to model our service on the Lord Jesus who did not come to be served but to serve. And in calling elders to this, he's calling us all to that service. But this gospel-shaped leadership will be most effective in a congregation where it meets gospel-shaped relating. In the same way, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The fact that congregations have elders tell you that there is order in congregational life where some are entrusted with the responsibility to promote the well-being of the whole congregation and so have an authority in the congregation to teach and govern. And others are called to voluntarily submit to that teaching and governing for the good of all. Peter focuses on the younger being subject to the elders here, meaning the elders of the congregation. The younger, of course, may be that part of the congregation that find it most difficult to submit themselves to the elders, perhaps because of pay- impatience or because perhaps because they've been <coughs> conned by their uh, conned by. Uh, their culture to think that the naivety of youth is somehow virtuous. But, anyhow, right, whatever it is, they're not the only ones who are called to voluntarily submit. You see, here the part stands for the whole. If they are to submit, so are all to submit. This call to respect the order in the life of the congregation is actually one with what we've seen throughout the letter, the call to recognise authority in other contexts, like submitting to governing authorities or slaves submitting to their masters or wives to their husbands. Now, that idea of order in relationship was expected and accepted in Peter's day, but it's much more troubling for us, isn't it? I mean, as a society, we are resistant to ordered relationships, any suggestion of hierarchy where the responsibility of one might be to exercise authority and the other to voluntarily submit. All authority, generally speaking, is seen as oppressive and we're very conscious of the reality of abuse of authority and less so of the dangers of the absence of authority, which is a real danger. And of course, we Glorify youth is often less corrupted by the conforming pressures of culture. So, you know, we can easily gloss over this teaching because it is very countercultural. yet especially under pressure and in a culture that's suspicious of Christians where the actions of one or some can affect the reputation of all. And didn't you wince? When you saw that protester with the sign that says, Jesus is my mask, I mean, you think, proud nonsense. It just turns you upside down. What does that do for the reputation of Jesus, right? <laughs> Where we're under pressure, it is good to voluntarily submit to those entrusted with the responsibility for the welfare of their congregation because it allows for considered responses to challenges and it helps preserve the unity that makes our love of one another easier. And we submit recognising that actually what's being asked for in relating to leadership is an expression of the way we should all relate to each other, a way of relating founded on the gospel. All of you, writes Peter, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God resists the proud. But gives grace to the humble. Now, the idea of putting on humility as a garment is not suggesting that humility is not real, not the real you, just something you put on for others, for show. It's actually the idea that when others are relating to you, what they encounter is humility, that this is what they experience in their relating with you all the time because that's the way you are or you are becoming. To relate to others with humility is, in Paul's words to the Philippians, Philippians 2, to consider others as more important than yourselves, everyone should look not to their own interests but rather to the interests of others. Now, more important in Philippians 2 actually means higher in status, more deserving of honour and consideration than yourself. And for Australians, it's hard to find an example of that. But let's just say you're at school and the headmistress came into the room, well hopefully you'd offer her a seat. If your boss was in the meeting, you'd let her or him speak first and not interrupt them. You know, that same courtesy we show to people we think in a sense are more important than us is the same courtesy we are to show to all our brothers and sisters and we're to look to and promote their interests, not just their own. And why should we do that? Because of the gospel and our experience of the gospel because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Peter quotes uh, Proverbs 3.34 there because it's actually a targeted summary of what has been proven true forever in the gospel of our Lord Jesus. It's been proven true by the events the gospel recounts. The proud who condemned Jesus didn't get their own way, just ensured by their actions their judgment. But Jesus, who humbled himself, was exalted over all. And it's not just proven true in the events of the gospel. That God gives grace to the humble has been proven true in believers' experience of salvation through believing the gospel of our Lord Jesus. You see, that God gives grace to the humble is the foundational experience of every believer. It's actually what's brought us here together as a congregation of God's people. You see, in the gospel, we see Jesus came to call not the well, but the sick, not the strong, but the weak, the poor in spirit. And in believing the gospel, we confess that we are the sick, we are the weak. We are the blind and the deaf and the dead in sin. We've confessed that we are the poor who had no hope in ourselves, that we couldn't save ourselves, make ourselves whole, and only Jesus, God's King, can. It was as we humbled ourselves to confess the truth of the verdict of God's word on our lives, that we're sinners who deserve death, to be eternally separated from the life and love of God, to confess that and to repent, to turn back, to confess that Jesus is Lord and cry out to him for the forgiveness he gives. It's only as we humbled ourselves that we found grace, the grace of God that forgives, that adopts us as God's children, that assures us of sharing in his glory. In believing the gospel, we know for ourselves that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And this grace doesn't puff us up as if these privileges are something we can take credit for. This grace transforms us to be like Christ in giving us the Spirit of the Son to bear his fruit in our lives. We are saved by Jesus to become like Jesus and so to have the mind of Christ in all our relating the mindset that relates to all with the humility that reckons others more important than ourselves, that looks to their interests just as our Lord Jesus did in going to the cross for us.
1: Peter here
0: tells us that leadership shaped by the gospel needs to meet relating shaped by the gospel. If we're to encourage each other in our life together, to keep on entrusting ourselves to our faithful creator and to show that in keeping on doing good, in being faithful to Christ even as we suffer. The pressures of the last almost two years going in and out of lockdown, isolation anxieties about children, work and health made us weary and it can make us weary in our leadership responsibilities and our serving whether that's leading in growth group, youth group, mums and babies, ministry, Sunday school, in all our areas of service, in eldership, board, deacons, and the differences that have been exposed by that pressure, whether that's in our experience of the pandemic, our attitude to vaccination or the actions of government, can create division and dissatisfaction. But here God tells us, to have our thinking about leadership, our own service and our relating to be shaped and sustained by the gospel of his son Jesus who humbled himself and was exalted through that humble obedience. Here God calls us to welcome, encourage and support gospel-shaped leadership, motivated and modelled on Christ he calls us all to be willing and eager to serve because we love Christ who loved us. And he calls us to practice gospel-shaped relation, relationships grounded in humility that seek the welfare of others. And God calls us to this because through the testimony of the apostles, if we're believers, we know the sufferings of Christ, that they were for us, and we are confident of sharing in Christ's glory, the glory of our faithful Saviour, for whom no service will be overlooked. And yes, we have come to know for ourselves the grace God gives to the humble and which lifts us up and exalts us as his children beyond our imagination. So, brothers and sisters, as we come into the new year, Heed the call. Let's be doers, not just hearers, and show our love for our Lord Jesus in serving willingly, eagerly, and by being examples to each other. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we pray first of all that each of us, knowing the Lord Jesus, trusting him, and humbling ourselves to confess the truth of your verdict on our lives, would know for ourselves his great grace, the grace that calls us to himself, the grace that has given himself for us, the grace that forgives us, the grace that keeps us. We pray that each of us would know our Lord Jesus' grace and in our hearts by your spirit be assured of your great love for us in giving your son for us. And gracious God, we pray, knowing that love, knowing the love of Jesus, we would love him. And loving him, love and serve his people and confessing him Lord, follow his example in all our service. And we pray this so that we would be your people in the world, light and salt in our community. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amén.